the video rental model is interesting. I mean, it was kind of a quirk of economics and of studio decisions. You know, when it first started in the 70s, first of all, the studios tried to block the video technology. You know, it first got started as a, as a medium to sort of record. And people were, I mean, it was almost like Grateful Dead bootlegs. The, there were these hardcore hobbyists who were recording movies off of the television and like trading tapes. Studios started putting movies directly, you know, putting them on tapes themselves, but they priced them at something like $100. Hi, I'm Daphne Howland. And I'm Ben Oglesby. We're senior reporters with Retail Dive, and this is our podcast where we break down the biggest industry news and trends. And talk about some of the things that don't always make it into our articles. This is The Backroom. Hey, Retail Dive readers. Welcome to another episode of The Backroom. Today, we're talking about family video and maybe some other media retailers who have been undergoing kind of an, an interesting revolution as streaming takes over some traditional means of distribution. Ben, you did a really nice piece on family video, which felt like a follow-up to your blockbuster story from a couple of years ago. And then family video in January, just a couple of weeks, I think, after that story ran, family video actually finally threw in the towel. So talk to us about your conversations with the family video crew and what happened in the last few months. Well, the news at first was that they were even around at all. I mean, they they were a video store chain with, I mean, they started the year with more than 500 stores. And if you don't live in the Midwest or the South, you probably might not even know that there was any video rental chains left anywhere. But Family Video had been chugging along through the entire past decade, you know, after all the big other rental chains liquidated, you know, after Blockbuster was gone, after Movie Gallery was gone, they were even expanding, you know, in the years following. And they'd started to pull back a little bit. They'd done some store closures in the last couple of years, but they were still around. And they they reached out to us actually in the fall, a few weeks before I wrote our story. And, you know, they're doing this marketing campaign around this hashtag called Save the Video Store. And it was kind of a nostalgia campaign. And they reached out to the movie studios and uh, tried to enlist celebrities. And it was like a zero dollar budget marketing campaign. A lot of it was on social media. Basically, they they've been pounded by the pandemic. And it wasn't just that they had to close their stores. It wasn't just the decline in foot traffic after they closed. But the pandemic also completely disrupted the Hollywood movie releases. And so even when they reopened their stores after the spring, they didn't have any good movies to, to draw people in. And that's still what their business was based around, was drawing people in with the latest new releases. Because they, they operated in markets where not everyone was, you know, that that where Netflix and you know Amazon Prime Video and uh, you know the other streaming services where that wasn't necessarily the prime mode of video watching for everyone. I mean, there are smaller smaller markets and and their demographic was was a little bit older. Their customers, one of their primary ways that they watched new videos was was stream rental. And if they didn't have any good movies, then that's all the less reason to to go into their stores. 
they were struggling and trying this marketing campaign and, and they reached out to us. I talked to the senior brand manager there and he'd only been with the company for, for about a year. So he actually kind of walked in with a fresh pair of eyes. And this is a company that that's, it's been family owned since the forties and they haven't been renting videos the entire time, but they were one of the first video rental stores. I think they first started renting out movies in the late seventies, just as this industry was kind of getting started. It's been family owned for for generations and he was kind of new to it and then the pandemic hit and he, you know, he leveled with me. He's like, they were going down to their, their strongest stores and hoping to build the business around that. But the reason why that they were doing this campaign, save the video stores, it was kind of this existential moment for them. If they didn't get support from their customers, they might have to close down. If you're doing a campaign based on nostalgia and kind of reminding people that you're still out there, well, chances are your your situation is kind of dire. And then it turned out they just couldn't keep it going. Um, and he, he they're even profitable right up to the end. But I mean, this is a company that has always been profitable and they don't have, you know, massive amounts of capital to plunge into a business that that's kind of on the decline anyway. They closed all their stores and and. Um, Threw in the towel. So yeah, they, they were the last video store chain. And as you mentioned, I've, I've written extensively about Blockbuster. I just want to interject. Anyone who has not read Ben's Blockbuster story has got to search it out. It's a treat. I, pre- I appreciate the plug. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a personal one for me because I, I was there. For, I worked at a Blockbuster for, for years in my youth. You know, I was in Bend right as the pandemic was sort it was sort of dawning on everyone it was the last trip i ever took was to bend oregon and when my friend was bringing me back to the airport we drove past that blockbuster and i was like there's ben's store (laughs) (laughs) um but so that's pretty impressive though that family video was chugging along pretty profitably that's surprising to hear actually i wonder if this year it was such a weird year for Hollywood. And I wonder if some of those movies that got released on streaming instead of theaters, if maybe they didn't get released on DVD so that the, I don't know this, but I'm just speculating that maybe the studios wanted to keep control because they can withdraw movies from streaming in order to get them into theaters. And you can't really withdraw a DVD once you've you know got it in circulation at a video store. And I don't know, you know, other forms of media that were threatened by digital had longevity. I mean, print books still enjoy pretty healthy sales and CDs and vinyl records are chugging along. Vinyl records actually have sort of a niche now and they have all kinds of ways of reissuing old albums and stuff to get you to get a certain edition of something. But I, it seems like movies just... As as even with a push for that kind of nostalgia that I don't know if do you think it's a quality issue that that streaming is as good as the DVDs? I just wonder. I mean, it's a really good question because with books there, I mean, people who like physical books like physical books, like we're attached to the the physicality of them, you know, the to the touch, to the smell. There's no replacing that with a digital book. I mean, digital- even the way the light falls on the page instead of coming through the page, you know, yeah, it's a different experience. Yeah. And to a lesser extent, vinyl, you know, I, I, I just got a record player about a year ago and I like touching the records and, and it does, it has a sound, even those, even old, cause I buy, I've bought 
all of our records use just about. And even the old ones with scratches still have this distinctive sound that's just, I don't know, maybe it might be a nostalgic sound for me because I, I, you know, I grew up. Definitely. I've been appreciated. You know, the other thing I appreciate because I just got a record player. So I'm trying to recreate the collection that I gave away in the 90s just gave it away i can't believe it i think there's probably a lot of people out there <laughs> who have similar regrets no yeah i don't need that one i do want this one but flipping through the records in the bins at the store doing that the first time i went in sort of like rubbing my hands together like okay time to see what they have and just that act of flipping through the bins brought back such memories of you know just kind of browsing in a in a record store and there's nothing like that flip 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 through the albums yeah and i mean cds have better sound than streaming and and mp3s i think but people you don't see people getting nostalgic for (laughs) for cds and there probably are some hardcore you know audiophiles out there who will listen to a cd as opposed to streaming but, but the vast majority of people you know, we'll we'll take the convenience of streaming or they like the physicality of the record. And and movies, I mean, again, there might be some hardcore people that prefer the quality of a of a Blu-ray or something to to what you can get on streaming. Cause I think I, I we should have an expert on here to talk about it. But I'm pretty sure streaming with both music and movies, the the quality and sound and, and visuals is not quite up to what you would have if you ha- if you had it on a physical media. I'm sure that's true. I know that with our video store, which sadly folded, it was an independent video store, fantastic place. Um, You know, the kind of place where those guys who work at these stores, you know, Ben, like they know movies. And so. Oh, yeah. That's why we're there. I mean, we we work there because we loved movies. So when you have a conversation with them, it's sort of like going into a bookstore. You end up watching movies that you didn't know about or wouldn't have thought of. And that's hard to do even when you're researching. It's just not the same as sort of that infectious enthusiasm that you get from someone who's sort of pushing a movie on you. The problem, though, is I think just the rental aspect of it, because it's a physical medium and it's being handled by so many people, you can get the kind of glitches just from an overused DVD or even Blu-ray that would happen to us sometimes. The video rental model is interesting. I mean, it was kind of a quirk of economics and of studio decisions. You know, when it first started in the 70s, first of all, the studios tried to block the video technology. You know, it first got started as a as a medium to sort of record and people were I mean, it was almost like Grateful Dead bootlegs. There were these hardcore hobbyists who were recording movies off of the television and like trading tapes. Studios started putting movies directly, you know, putting them on tapes themselves. But they priced them at something like $100 because they didn't. I'm fuzzy on it now. I think they didn't want to cannibalize their, their theater business. I kind of remember this. Yeah. Even I think for like a video store you had to right yeah it was i mean from from the beginning all all the way up through when i was working at a video store in the early 2000s vhs was over a hundred dollars and it was over a hundred dollars in the late 70s and 80s so, so you can imagine with inflation how much that would cost 
And that's why the rental model made sense is the video stores could afford the prices, put up the capital, rent it out, and then you know, recoup the costs and, and make a profit. But it wasn't worth it to almost any consumer to, to buy a video and have a library. And then a- after movies have been released for a while, they, they started to go down in price. And I, I forget when that started. But so you had this sort of video rental model pop up. And it was just it was it was a cottage industry. In the beginning, it was these little mom and pop shops. And again, a lot of them were just movie buffs, just people who liked movies and they're like, oh, hey, yeah, I, I, I like movies. It'd be fun to start a video store. And, you know, they they ended up becoming a, you know, a major channel for movies um, and, and for the studios. The chain started to take over in the 80s. You know, the guy who started Blockbuster was not a big movie buff. He was <laughs> he was he was a business guy. He was a finance guy. And he started just sort of buying up all these little smaller chains and mom and pop shops and kind of took the McDonald's model and applied it to video rental. But then, you know, when Blockbuster really started to decline, it was, I think a lot of people peg it to the, the era of streaming, but it was well before that. It, was, it, was, it again went to how the studios were pricing things. I mean, they had, they had other business issues going on, but um, when DVD came out, the studio started pricing DVDs at prices people could actually afford right off the bat as soon as they were released on on video. So instead of being a $100 VHS, you had like a $25 DVD or even less. Like Walmart started selling DVDs, at, I think, at a loss and they just made them loss leaders. And then all of a sudden you could buy it, set them for $10 at Walmart or, or rent it from Blockbuster for, you know, almost five bucks. All of a sudden, Walmart became a major competitor and Best Buy was a competitor and Target was a competitor. So that was a decision that the studios made that affected the entire rental model. So so you had the the studios kind of decisions they made kind of affected the trajectory of video rental along the way. And it was kind of an accident of studio decisions that it popped up to begin with. But now we're in an era where we don't even have stores that specialize in selling videos for sale. I'm wondering, is there something that these retailers could have done to save themselves? One of the guys who runs the sort of small New England chain that was started here, place I go to for CDs and records, and now books because they've had to expand. He, with a bunch of other independent record stores several years ago, started Record Store Day. Comic Book Day kind of does the same thing for comic book stores. Just this one day, there's events around it, and it sort of tapped everyone on the shoulder and said, remember vinyl, you know? And that's sort of expanded now where the record companies will issue the picture disc of Purple Rain or Stop Making Sense with on blue vinyl that is only available to the indies and only available like in limited quantities on a certain date. It's a 30-year-old album or whatever, but collectors come. They want that one. So I think that got the industry some attention, maybe helped them make the bridge until the nostalgia really did kick in. Because I think nostalgia and that appreciation for the audio that you were talking about and the physicality are real reasons for people to return to vinyl. Is there anything, any kind of equivalent in the video space that you think retailers tried or could have tried? Yeah, it's tough. When I was doing the Blockbuster story, I reached out to Ernie Smith, who writes, it's a newsletter called 
tedium, which is about all kinds of like old obsolete technology and, and media and, and things that kind of get forgotten in time. And he, he wrote a piece once for that blog about if Blockbuster could have become a like a little movie theater, like a little neighborhood movie theater, which it, it was an idea I was kind of taken with. I, and I don't know how the economics would would have worked out. And and in the same piece, he also speculated about Barnes and Noble or, and Borders when Borders was still around. That's another big you know media chain that just kind of folded. If if it could have been like a paid library, you know, you go there for the experience. And you pay it, you know, you pay a fee and you go there to drink coffee and read books and be out in the world as opposed to doing it in your house. Movies is tough. I mean, as you mentioned, I mean, you know, as we were talking about, you don't have the same physicality or you don't have major quality differences. You know, I do think people might there might be like collective social regret (laughs) for going all in on streaming because you don't own the product even if you purchase it as a file, you don't necessarily own the product. That has been a rude awakening for some people who thought the same thing with albums, actually. You can buy an album or a movie and you think you own it, but Amazon or Apple or whoever you bought it from can actually pull that from your library. So I guess that's in the fine print somewhere, I'm sure. And with streaming, you know, we, we, we're Netflix subscribers and The Office just disappeared from it. Another one of our favorite shows, Parks and Rec, came off uh, a couple of years ago or maybe a year ago. You know, you have a streaming service, you have things you like on it, and then it disappears. And then what do you do? Do you have to get another subscription? Do you, are you always changing? Yeah, pretty soon that cord cutting that people do to avoid cable and they just sign up for Netflix, it means it starts to add up to the same amount because you're just starting to belong to all the streaming services, which, by the way, doesn't get you all that much. They all have great content, but they don't all have all great stuff. You know, it's like there's a lot of kind of junk on all of those services, too. Yeah. I mean, I think there are a lot of things about a video store, for example, that was just better. And and today, I think, is better. I mean, I think discovery is much easier. Browsing for movies, stopping and reading all the different boxes. I mean, it's a lot more fun, or at least like not unpleasant, to spend an hour in a video store reading boxes and talking to the employees versus spending an hour sorting through all your streaming services on a computer screen. And you had different ways. I mean, I remember our video store, you could go to the staff picks shelves, you could browse, you could talk to someone, you could look stuff up if you had something in mind, you know, do they have this? Is it out? Whereas for something like Netflix, they might actually have things that isn't being brought forth by their algorithm. They might actually have things that you want, but you'd have to, it's very hard to figure out what Netflix has or if you have a couple of the services you know there are a couple of apps and stuff that will search for you it's available here for rent or for streaming but they miss sometimes so you either have to already know what you're after and search for it but it's hard to to discover a gem that you might not know you want to see that's the kind of thing that the store was really good at helping you with which is part of, you know, the education when it comes to culture, like music and movies. It's part of the education you get throughout your life of what books you read and what movies you see. The streaming services are serving up the 
popular stuff that it, which a lot of it that's good and fun too but there's some of the obscure stuff that you it's almost like we don't know what we're missing which is almost worse <laughs> yeah a video store and a bookstore and any media store for one thing they're curated and they're curated by people and you know at, at our blockbuster is curated based on data but also we would advocate for movies either by recommending them to people you know we would all have our quirky little favorite movies that we would recommend to people we would put on our favorites wall we would try to say when we would go through and call movies from time to time that weren't doing as well to make space we you know throw ourselves upon them and try to save our save them from our from our boss so you have this kind of human curation that's not algorithmic it is based on the quirks of human taste the bigger thing that we're losing is just a media store as a cultural hub. People who love movies worked at video stores. I worked at a video store because I love movies. I love books and I worked at a bookstore and we become experts on these things and we help become part of that culture. You know, it, we all wanted to make movies a lot, or I'd say like half of the staff had fantasies about screenwriting or making movies and we were probably do we, we had our little projects you know not everyone can work in hollywood or not everyone can be you know a famous novelist but culture i mean culture <laughs> storytelling are these are things that go back to you know the very beginnings of humans really they're part of our humanity and and a media store becomes part of like that cultural maintenance and that the, those cultural bonds and when you lose that you weaken those bonds in a way you can't replace it the same way digitally you certainly can't do it with an algorithm and even with social media talking about it is not the same as a store because we were kind of like a bar almost you know late on a saturday night people come in and we just talk you know we made friends with our customers we'd started talking about movies but you know we were all up in people's personal lives you know I used to bring my dog in and they had, um, they had dog biscuits back there <laughs> for the dogs who came in. Um, yeah, you could spend a lot of time. You could spend a lot of time at your video store, like a bookstore, like you said. I think part of it is that's missing that an algorithm actually rejects is idiosyncrasy. And it's the idiosyncrasy of the one staff person that is contributing to a the bigger idiosyncrasy of the store. And that's where discovery happens. And that's how discovery happens. And I'm not sure an algorithm is capable of that just because it's almost the opposite of what an algorithm is designed to do, which is be efficient. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I find myself getting tired of algorithms with online music, with online streaming music, with online, you know, video too. Like, I want to find the thing that I didn't even know I would like. And a lot of times it takes someone else recommending it to you or just, and even in that moment of recommendation, an excited conversation between two people. And in that conversation, they recommend a book or uh, an album or a movie. And you go seek it out based partly on the energy of that conversation. There is no way to replicate that. Exactly. And then they remember you, so they ask you how you liked it, and you have a whole nother conversation. But yeah, I, I want, I like, stop telling me the things that you think I'll like. Like, tell me something I didn't even know existed and would never have thought to find. Like, that's, 
and the other thing we're losing, and, and this came up, I asked about this when I was reporting both Blockbuster and, and Family Video. And for the Family Video store story, I, I talked with a, a professor, uh, Dan Herbert at University of Michigan. He also wrote a book about video stores, you know, and I asked him, like, has it affected the movie production industry at all, losing that channel? It's a hard thing to know for sure. It's a hard thing to tease out. But he, he said, yes, probably there's probably less independent movie production today because video stores were such a good and ready channel for like low budget movies or lower budget movies. If nothing else, you could get them straight to stores if you couldn't afford a theatrical release, but it, it kind of opened up that market. There's a lot of good indie production going on today, but a lot of it is directed towards serials, towards TV content. It, I, I don't know if you call it TV, if it's on Netflix or whatever, but we're in a golden era, era of television. And I think that's probably a lot because of the streaming services, but they need like binge worthy content to get people hooked on a monthly subscription fee versus video rental lent itself better to movie making. So you had a lot of, you know, indie content into, you know, feature films. And it's not to say one is better or worse than the other, but you have this major shift in the retail channel for something. And it actually changed the, the cultural production too. I think it's also what video stores had been doing until they started to really falter is taking up a lot of space that was once served by the independent movie theater, which was also not disappearing a little bit. So you maybe didn't have that little one screen theater anymore, but your video store would have those movies. I wish those little one screen movie theaters would come back too. <laughs> I, I, I would prefer them to the big multiplexes. Yeah, this is going to be a moment of reckoning for them. We'll see what shakes out post-pandemic or what comes back because, yeah, there's a lot of good things, as you said, coming out. But the movie, the Scorsese, although he had that three-hour movie that he streamed on Netflix and didn't send to theaters, and it was fantastic. There's not that many features that come out on the streaming services. You know, it'll be interesting to watch what happens with GameStop. We've seen video stores basically wiped off the face of the planet. <laughs> there's still there's still some there's still a few out there, uh, a few independents out there in the world. Um, but we lost the last the last chain. Bookstores were down to, you know, Barnes and Noble is doing okay, but struggling still, I think. And bookstores, even if people still love physical books, you know, there's still the digitization of the of the retail channel. And by that, I mean Amazon. I think they have to be really smart about their merchandising. Same thing with record stores. Like, does GameStop, I think they bought sort of a, a novelty retailer at one point. Are they all in on games? What's going on with them? I mean, it, it's a really interesting transition period because you have both the digitization of the retail channel, so you can sell physical games online. You have the digitization of the product, and it's a product that lends itself pretty well to digitization if it's if the if the quality keeps up. So it, it there's not any like inherent desire for the physicality of of a game the way there is might be for a book or a record. And they have thousands of stores, <laughs> but it's also it is right. a cultural product and there's a whole subculture based around it. And can you find a way to base a business off that? I mean, gamers 
might like to be together and might like to talk to experts at a store, but can you find a way to make money off that without selling them products? If your products are being sold online or sold directly by the game makers, that's going to be the test. And they just had a big activist investment from Brian Cohen, one of the co-founders of of Chewy. They just had this big board shakeup and and Cohen and some other former Chewy executives are, are on the GameStop board right now. And they are pushing for GameStop to go all in on digital and convert themselves to basically a technology company. And I don't know what exactly that looks like. Of games like like Sony? Or- no, not a producer. And, and that's where I'm not quite sure what they have in mind. But some sort of you know, digital game distribution channel or marketing or something. I'm not quite sure where they're going with it. It'll be interesting to see what they have in mind. I don't know why you would need GameStop as as a middleman online if you can sell games directly from the game makers into the system itself. This is where we might need to hear from people. I'm wondering if games, I've got a couple gamers in my house, my husband and one of my daughters are always at it, <laughs> but they tend to play titles that I think a lot of people are familiar with, but do games follow kind of the movie thing of, are there indie games that don't have as many followers or is that, that could actually be an area of growth. If you had a niche where less blockbustery kinds of games could be produced or distributed. I don't know. It is a good reminder of what a retailer is for. It's there as a kind of curator and vetter of products. Maybe there is still a use for them online. It'll be interesting to see how they approach digitization and what, if anything, they do with their stores. Well, I have to say that GameStop has hung on in a way that I didn't expect them to. So hopefully we won't be seeing them disappear from the landscape the way we've watch the video stores disappear. It is honestly sad to me. I mean, I worked at a video store from ages 18 to 23, 24, on and off. I mean, it was a formidable experience for me, and it was a lot of fun. And I made some of the best friends I had ever made. And it's sad to me that other young kids who love movies aren't going to get that experience. They don't really have anywhere in their neighborhood to go work (laughs) where they get to be around movies. I worked at an actual movie theater in my neighborhood. And actually, maybe I can brag about this a little bit. It was a two theater chain. One was in the suburb where I lived and another was closer to downtown Milwaukee. And Milwaukee Magazine declared the chain to have the best popcorn in the city. (laughs) And then one day, my boss, who was this totally you know, he barely said anything. He kind of came over with his stern, unsmiling face and um, said, have Daphne make the popcorn. She makes the best popcorn. (laughs) Which meant that I made the best popcorn in the city. That is something. You should put that on your resume, seriously. I know. I should. (laughs) That theater is still around. It's now like a dinner combo. A lot of retailers and media distribution points have had to evolve and figure out how to survive. Well, we'll definitely be keeping our eye on all of this as we continue our reporting. All right, that's all the time we have. Thanks for listening and be sure to like, rate, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.